a gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Religion Today with Martin Tanner, a weekly look at religion and spirituality here at home and around the world. Now, here's your host, Martin Tanner. Welcome. This is Religion Today. I'm your host, Martin Tanner. Today, a look at the Old Testament, some of the things that we should and do understand about it, and some of the things that are often missed. The Old Testament is such a fascinating and valuable book. I thought kind of an overview on these subjects might be really, really useful. Let's start off with how it got its name. Christians and most people in the West call the Old Testament the Old Testament because of Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. This is the Christian idea about the Old Testament and its name. Christians saw Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, as describing God's original covenant, meaning the law of Moses, with the Jews, which, according to Christianity, was broken. And then there was a new covenant, meaning Christianity. And so you have this old covenant and a new covenant, and those were improperly translated into English as the Old Testament and the New Testament. Our Old Testament should really be called the Old Covenant, meaning the Law of Moses, and our New Testament should really be called the New Covenant or the teachings and laws and covenants of Jesus. So now that we know that the title of the Old Testament is wrong, let's talk about one more thing, and that is, what do the Jews call the Old Testament? Because certainly, they wouldn't call it the Old Covenant. They believe it is the current covenant, because the Messiah has not yet come. The Jews have what we would call the Old Testament divided up into three parts. The Torah, or law, the Nevi'im, or the prophets, and the Ketuim, meaning the other writings, essentially. And so if you take all of those together and, and sort of make a contraction or a composite word, you get what the Jews call the Old Testament, which is the Tunak. The T-A is from Torah. The N-A in the middle is from the Nevim, the prophets, and the K-H at the end 
is the Ketuvim, or the other writings. So the Jews call the Torah the Nevi'im and the Ketuvim, meaning the law, the prophets, and the writings, the Tunak. That's the Jewish word for the Old Testament. The Old Testament is a fascinating book. Have you ever read it and thought, that's such a wonderful story, that has a lot of meaning, and then come away with an entirely different idea about some other portion of it because you don't understand why such a thing would be in the Bible. Let's take a step back that might help with a little bit of that and talk about the book of Genesis. In English, Genesis means the beginning or the time when things began, and it has that same meaning in Hebrew or in Greek, depending on which uh, version of the Old Testament you're talking about, the Septuagint or the Hebrew Masoretic text. And this Old Testament, the first book, the book of Genesis, is about beginnings all the way through. It talks about where the creation happened, how the world and the universe came to be, how humans came to be, the first people, the beginnings also of families, of good and evil with Cain and Abel. It has the beginnings of the Jews. When you look at Abraham, it talks about new beginnings when you have the flood and the new beginning after the ark. As you look through the book of Genesis, it seems as though the overall purpose is to describe how major categories of things began over and over and over. You see that theme. And so if you read the Old Testament with that in mind, particularly the book of Genesis, you will see that it describes the origins of things. And then after you get the origins down, the meanings of those things. And one of the most important things after you have the origin is to have the law, the basis upon which things are made. Hence, the first five books of the Old Testament are the law, the writings of Moses. They're attributed to Moses. Now, we certainly don't have the original version with us. And if you were to talk to scholars, they would tell you this is some composite of a whole bunch of people, and they would not attribute it to Moses. But most believing Christians and Jews, not all, would believe that Moses was the underlying author, and then it has been reworked many, many, many times, well, one of which is specifically mentioned in the Bible at the time of the Reformation, about 623 B.C. As you read through the Old Testament, would it not be true that you read through things and kind of scratch your head and wonder, why is that there? Maybe a couple of examples might be Genesis chapter 32, starting in verse 22, where Jacob wrestles with God. Why would that be there? What's the purpose of that? It doesn't really come through for modern readers because they don't understand the backdrop and the cultural ideas. Another one that's really a big deal and causes 
consternation for modern readers is Genesis chapter 19, where you first have Lot offering his two daughters to the evil men of Sodom. Why would he do such a thing? Modern readers don't grasp that. And then later on, after Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed, you have Lot's daughters going into Lot, who is inebriated, and becoming pregnant and and having his children. Why would they do that? That's something that modern readers don't grasp. And the difference is cultural. And I'm going to give you some examples here of how we miss things when we don't understand the culture. If you were to describe to someone who lived at the time Genesis were written, hundreds and hundreds, thousands perhaps of years before the time of Christ, how would you describe movies? Well, maybe you could describe a recent movie, the remake of West Side Story. That wouldn't be too tough because you have these two warring factions and wars are something that's always happened. So that might not be too tough. How about The Sound of Music? If you told an ancient audience, well, The Sound of Music got its title from music and how it sounds. Well, what's the setting? Well, it's a war. Then people would wonder, why would you ever name a work of art, meaning a movie, after wartime and music? That would not make sense. Making even less sense might be trying to explain Forrest Gump to an ancient audience that is so full of modern cultural references that the meaning just doesn't quite come through. The same way if you perhaps tried to describe American Graffiti as a movie. Well, why why would somebody name a movie after spray painting on the sides of boat? No, no, it doesn't talk about that. It talks about people would scratch their heads. They wouldn't get it. Cultural things are found in the Bible all of the time. And as a result, we miss the underlying meaning or the greater meaning. And so that's something that I hope in another show in the future, I'll be able to uh, compile more on and be able to give a few examples of where we miss things like that. I'm Martin Tanner. This is Religion Today. We'll be right back. Religion Today with Martin Tanner continues on KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. We're back. I'm Martin Tanner. This is Religion Today. Our topic today is the Old Testament, where it came from, its purpose, and its divisions, and when it was written. It's fascinating. The book of Genesis, if you just read it, the topic, the information that's in it, had to have happened thousands of years before the time of Christ. If it was written by Moses, as Latter-day Saints believe, then even he was writing about things that occurred many, many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before his time, actually thousand years at least. The minimum time period that would get you 
to the time of Adam and Eve would be more than 4,000 B.C. That's a long time ago. The current book of Genesis, as we have it, can't be older than about 16 to 1700 B.C. It was later reworked, as I mentioned earlier, about 623 B.C., as is described during the Jewish Reformation. If you look at Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they were all reworked at about the same time of the Babylonian exile. And more than that, we really don't know. Why? Well, because if you look at this time frame, 1700 B.C. approximately, we just don't have anything that goes back that late or that early. The earliest copy of the Bible books that we have of the Old Testament are from the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they date to about 300 years B.C. That's the earliest that we can go. So there's this enormous, enormous gap, which leads to all kinds of speculation about the books of the Old Covenant and about exactly what they mean. When we talk about complete books of the Old Testament, we have some even more fascinating gaps than just 300 B.C. The oldest complete Bible dates to about the 4th century A.D. That's 300 years after the time of Jesus. That's the earliest one, Codex Vaticanus. So, what has happened to the Bible since those earliest days when it was reworked? How has it come to us in the form that we find it today? And the answer to that is that in about 300 B.C., about the time the Dead Sea Scrolls Bibles were hidden away in the caves um, of Qumran near the Dead Sea. And by the way, those um, ancient works are written in Hebrew. But after 300 B.C., after this early exile, what you had happen was that uh, the Jews started to lose their youth, or they were at least worried about losing their youth when they were under the rule of the Greeks. Alexander the Great had conquered the known world. Everyone had to speak Greek, and the younger generation of Jews spoke Greek. They probably spoke some Hebrew still, but Greek was their principal language to use in culture. And so it was important for them to have a Bible that they could read. And so the Bible was translated into Greek. The Septuagint is what we call that Bible from the word 70 in Greek. That book is the earliest known version of the Bible that we have. We don't have earlier complete Bibles, Old Testaments. We just have some from the Dead Sea Scrolls. 
but we have the Septuagint in Greek. After that, we have a number of reworkings of, of the Bible. I mentioned uh, Codex Vaticanus. That's a book that was nearly complete, and it shows in itself that there were things going on. People were tampering with the Bible. There's this little margin note in Codex Vaticanus that was written by a scribe, and there have been various translations of this little margin note into English, but the gist of it is fool and knave, meaning kind of a negative statement against uh, future scribes or, or warning to them, saying, don't be a fool. Keep the text the way it's written. Don't change the text. That's the meaning of this writing. That wouldn't have been there if there hadn't been problems with that. So a scribe actually wrote in the margin, leave the original text alone. From there, the Bible was translated from Greek into Latin. And the Latin Bible is called the Vulgate. There were a number of editions or examples of the Vulgate Bible. It was commissioned by Pope Damascus I in about 382 AD. And it's an amazing translation. Latin, of course, is today a dead language. You, you can't find a place that speaks Latin as their official language, although Latin is something that's easily read by scholars. So the Vulgate, this Latin Bible, was the one that was used as an official Bible within Catholicism and the Eastern Orthodox faith for many, many, many years. And then you get to a time in about 1535 when John Wycliffe translated the Bible into English. His translation was not widely read because the printing press had not yet been invented. And to be very blunt, although John Wycliffe was a brilliant man, he wasn't quite as good at translating as some of the later translators right after him, who also were fortunate enough to translate the Bible into English at the time of the printing press. Who am I referring to? That would be William Tyndale. William Tyndale's Bible would be the equivalent today of the number one on the New York Times on steroids. This was an amazing bestseller of its time. William Tyndale's Bible was printed. It was not hand-copied. It was also small, and it was also contraband, which made it quite popular at the time. It was made very small so that you could hide it, not some great big huge Bible. It was pocket-sized, and both women and men could have a Bible that they could read in their own native English, and it was everywhere. After Tyndale was killed, that even increased its popularity, especially because he was killed because he had translated the Bible into English. After he did that, in 1525, you had the floodgates opened. In 1539, the Great Bible, which was the first official translation in English, was done by the Church of England. And then in 1568, you had the Bishop's Bible, which was the second great official translation into English. It was promoted by Matthew Parker, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury. 
and he did it to correct deficiencies in the Great Bible, which had been translated from Latin and not from the original Hebrew. There were a lot of new manuscripts that had become available, so the bishop's Bible was really useful. And then, not long after that, in 1611, King James commissioned the third great official translation of the Bible into English. And then we've had a proliferation, a great proliferation of many, many, many different translations of the Bible. If you want to read a more literal but accurate one, take a look at the New Revised Standard Version. If you want one in modern plain English, I really like the contemporary English version. Join me again next week. I'm Martin Tanner. This is Religion Today. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.